Welcome to Podability, the podcast for parents and families of disabled children. Brought to you by Variety, the children's charity. I'm your host, Dan White. Caring for a child with a disability can be all-consuming. For many parent carers, looking after their disabled child is a 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 52 weeks a year undertaking. And beyond exhaustion and burnout, parents of children with disabilities tend to be faced with a continuous barrage of complex challenges such as social isolation, difficulty finding resources and often major financial strain. Given that it costs, of course, an extra £581 a month to raise a disabled child other than a non-disabled child. It goes without saying that parents of disabled children love and adore their children, and caregiving is a natural expression of that love. But what is the impact of relentless caregiving on their mental health? What can be done to make sure that the carers themselves are taken care of, so that they can maintain their mental equilibrium? Where can carers look for help and support with their emotional and psychological well-being? Joining me to discuss these questions is Natasha Devon, MBE. We've got someone with an MBE on. I can't believe it. Anyway, she's a mental health campaigner and author of A Beginner's Guide to Mental Health, an A to Z from anxiety to zero, beep, beep, beeps, given. I like that. And she also writes for The Guardian. Also joining me is Louise McLaughlin, who is a mum and carer to Megan, and she's also a mum to Imogen. Megan is a wheelchair user with spina bifida, and her sister Megan are both aspiring young actresses. This topic is really close to my heart. My wife and I care for our daughter, Emily, who is disabled with a range of conditions, and we're aware that round-the-clock caregiving has definitely impacted our mental health. I'm not ashamed to say myself that I live with depression. It's not a nice person to live with, and it takes up half the bed. Anyway, Natasha, when we talk about mental health, what exactly do we mean? What does good mental health look like and poor mental health? Can you give us some examples? That's a massive question. I know. I like to start (laughs) Start with with. a massive question, especially this early in the day. Um, I think part of the problem, actually, with the discussion that we're having about mental health in this country and throughout the world is that it means such different things to different people. And the only way that I can convey that really is to say, just substitute it for physical health. So if I said to you, I've got a physical health problem right now. Okay. It would be ridiculous for me to expect you to know what I meant by that. True, true. Yeah. And by the same token, I, you know, I think a lot of the time when people talk about mental health and, and they say, oh, maybe I run for my mental health or they're talking about mental fitness, but that's not necessarily going to be effective as a treatment for mental illness. So there are all these kind of nuances to it. But generally speaking, I think of it like a grid. So if you've got diagnosis along the horizontal axis and mental fitness along the vertical, and if you think of it like that as a cross, everybody exists at some point within that spectrum. That's amazing. What an amazing way to look at it. And, you know, I've never even thought about it that in that respect, the culmination of the two, because for me, for mental health, it is just mental health not equated to physical mm. health. And that's, that's a really interesting point to make. I mean, I noticed there's been a lot of research on the impact, this is a, this is, this is a new one, of chronic exhaustion, stress and anxiety on the body's ability to produce important brain chemicals like serotonin and doomorphine, I probably said that wrong because it's so early in the morning, which allows us to regulate our mood and bounce back and feel okay. But um, what symptoms are burnout parents caring for children with disabilities likely to experience as a result 
of of all this going on, do you think? Because we just go and go and go and go. We mm. don't ever rest, as, as Louise will probably agree. Yeah, that's uh, it's really important to understand this. And this is a lot of the work that I do with children is that stress and anxiety aren't negative necessarily. In fact, we've evolved to have them for very good reasons. But they were meant to be short-term strategies. We, we've evolved to have stress to stop us from laying around on our bums all day. And we've evolved to have anxiety to protect us from danger and, and keep us alive. The problem is, is that the world is more consistently stressful and anxiety producing than it's ever been. And also that our stress and anxiety chemicals originally in the amygdala, which is a really basic bit of hardware and doesn't understand the difference between a crowded bus and a tiger. Yeah, you know, it just knows it doesn't like it. So what me that means is we get this uh, adrenaline cortisol um, consistently in our system. And if you have an overload, that not only puts you at higher risk of depression and anxiety, but it also stops you from performing cognitively. So I would say the first symptom of that overload would be not being able to think clearly, having difficulty making decisions, snapping, you know, behaving in ways that you're not particularly proud of, saying things that you don't mean. We all do that occasionally. But if you find you're consistently doing that, then you're probably overloaded. Oh, goodness me, because that certainly does ring bells. I mean, Louise, you and I are both carers of disabled children. And as such, we both move in the same community. Do you find you're seeing more parents than ever living with a mental illness? I think now it's not necessarily there are more people living with it or I'm seeing it more. I think now it's OK to talk about it. I think it's all right to admit now that it's OK not to be OK. Um, with social media and support groups, I think people are talking about it a lot more. And it's it's quite liberating, actually, to be able to say that, yeah, I'm going through this at the moment. And for people to say, yeah, me too. It's it's really nice to know that there are people out there. And I mean, 11 years ago when I had Megan, that didn't exist. Um, social media wasn't so big and it was very, very isolating. It was. That's the main thing, wasn't it? I, I, I can definitely go along, along with that, the isolation fact of it because Emily's now 13 like you said even 13 years ago there was literally nothing I mean both Facebook and Twitter I've done it for Twitter as around but everything was such in its infancy wasn't it yeah I'm so old I don't know when they started as well I was born in like 6 AD I think according to Emily but yeah I mean it, and even then 13 years ago it wasn't something you really talked about it was something you just where well, in my instance I didn't know was coming on and what you just said, Natasha, about those little signs. Thinking about it now, I can actually see from when it all started because I remember snapping, constantly snapping. It was always catastrophizing with me as well that was building up and building up. And I think I think that's the worst aspect of it, especially when you're a parent of a disabled child because the amount of operations or hospital appointments, the fear of the future, stuff like that, especially if a child has a physical disability, you're often catastrophizing everything that's going to happen to them. And it's just it just spirals out of control. And it would have been nice if all these services had been in situ so long ago, especially for our community, mm. to help us at the start of that journey. Because now we're, mm. I don't even know if we're seeing it now happening with new parents coming along now. I don't know if there's anything for them now to say, okay, your child's disabled, we can give you this mental health support. I mean, it's just so fractured. I mean, it's, 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 archaic unfortunately and a lot needs to be done and i'm finding well natasha as carers we often do not have the time to be thinking about our own needs but like you said the warning signs are there are there any other signs of an encroaching mental illness that we should be looking for i mean like physical signs mm. are there physical signs that we should be looking for 
because obviously we're, we're perpetually on the go. We don't get a chance to stop and sit down with a cup of tea. Well, unless we go to Pret in the morning on the way. <laughs> <laughs> a reference to my terribly loose lifestyle, I assume. Um, keep it up, keep it up. Um, yes, is the answer to your question. So if you are highly anxious, the chances are you're perpetually in fight, flight or freeze uh, mode, which is, uh, again, something that evolved for very good reason. It's when we encounter danger, our bodies uh, are on hyper alert. For me, as somebody who has a history of panic attacks, I recognise that as fight or flight because um, it's like suddenly the world goes into HD, whereas it was on SD. So suddenly okay. kind of colours are brighter and sounds are louder and I'm very aware of everything. And that's to keep me alive. And again, occasionally that won't do you any harm. But if you find yourself consistently in fight, flight or freeze, it means that your body will prioritise the fight, flight or freeze over the other things that it needs to do. So people who are consistently anxious will often find that they pick up every virus going. Sometimes their hair will start to fall out. Um, bruises and cuts take longer to heal because of their immunity. And also um, they will either not eat or overeat because they're no longer in tune with their body's natural hunger signals. So mate, I'm sat here with my mouth agape because <laughs> I never even realised that. Mm. The fact that that would happen to the body, like the fact bruises taking so much longer to heal. That's that's almost that's that's something that's absolutely quite stunned me. I mean, as my wife and my daughter will say, it doesn't take a lot to stop me from talking or keep <laughs> my, or, or stop me chuntering on. But that's an incredible. So there are lots of physical manifestations on the body that people should be looking for. I'm just hoping that these people will be aware of it after listening to this and can consciously see what's going on. I love the fact you said you switch from SD to HD. Yeah. Does everything like get, is everything more sharper? It is, but I also become quite myopic in the way that I see the world. So I'll find that I'll be focusing really intensely on one spot yep. rather than seeing my environment as I normally see. Gotcha. And and the reason that I know that actually is because um, uh, one of the therapists that I work with advised me to plot my panic attack from one to ten. For me, the, the major symptom of panic has to do with breathing. So ten would be I'm hyperventilating. But obviously there's lots of uh, stages before that. And if you can catch it early, you stand a much better chance of dialing yourself back. Gotcha. Gotcha. I just hope that the, the parents out there, I mean, I, I never noticed like i said unfortunately the, the spiraling down of my mental health and it'd just be great if people can be more aware i mean i know they're perpetually so busy like like me and louise and thousands of people listening now it'd just be nice if we can start being a bit more aware of ourselves even if we get like the briefest two minutes during the day just to stop and think okay how am i doing i mean louise can i ask you what organizations can offer support to carers i mean are you aware of carer support groups like carers uk and do you think that they would benefit you? Obviously, because they're big organisations. So I'm just wondering how impersonal or personal they can get to people. I mean, would they help where the clinical profession can't? So Megan's 11 now. And over that time, I've approached many different support groups and organisations. And what I found is that no one can tailor their their help to your specific needs. It's very generic. It's, well, if your child has this, then we recommend this. Um, they don't take into account, you know, this is my family setup. This is what my family are dealing with. Finances, that's what it all comes down to, isn't it? It's nobody has the time, the money or the resources to help each family individually. 
And unfortunately, I've yet to find a support group or an organisation who has actually been beneficial to my own family. I know, that's incredibly sad, isn't it? Because you have these organisations who, who, who say come to us for support and yet they, they, they become so big that they can only give you a finite amount of time. Exactly. And it, and it does make you wonder, okay, thanks for that, but no thanks all at the same time. Mm. So, so, so where can I go? But I would think that a local support group would be something that would be really, really helpful, like a local carer support group, you know, sharing experiences for people who get it. It would be far more helpful and easier than talking, as we all know, to a rushed GP appointment. I mean, when you're with other people like we are here, I mean, it can be so cathartic with your kin, you can release much needed similar stresses, talk about things for people who get it and not be judged. Um, and dare I say, even have a laugh, <laughs> can't you? Because I think without that pressure release of laughing, ne- nothing is ever going to change. But Natasha, stress and anxiety are rife. Mm. In fact, they can be consistent partners, uh, as me and Louise and many people actually know, and carers worry about. And we, we both worry about today and tomorrow, and we even stress on the past. Um, does it help to give your mental health a name? How was that helpful? Because I know in your marvellous book... Yeah. Yeah, but that, um, obviously we can't be political or anything like that, but I know you gave your mental health a name. Does it make it easier to deal with if you give it a name it did for me um i have the, the the most enduring symptom of my anxiety is i have what feels like a lump in my throat it's not actually a lump it's my throat muscles constricting because this is where i hold my tension um but i i call the lump nigel um and it's just a way of being able to talk about it um like you say i think if you are able to introduce some humour, it shows that you have a certain emotional distance from it, which is very healthy. I think it's definitely part of the recovery process. So I will sometimes say to um, you know, my, my husband, I feel a bit nigel today and he knows exactly what I mean. Um, uh, however, I should add a note of caution that um, I read a book called um, How to Disappear Completely by Kelsey Osgood. And that is very specifically about anorexia. And she talks there about there's this kind of acknowledged uh, pathology in anorexia where a lot of people, particularly young women who experience it, really relate to Alice in Wonderland. This idea of this kind of innocent young girl who falls down a rabbit hole. And that's acknowledged to be actually quite dangerous um, because it, it stops them from knowing themselves they're kind of playing a character and so she says you know the, the, when she was in a recovery ward there were all of these girls who had given their eating disorders cutesy names like Anna and Mia and mm-hmm. presented them in in these ways uh, Nigel is not cute in yeah. any way yeah him. yeah I know respect from reading your book I know exactly all about Nigel I mean, <laughs> Louise do you have any pet names for your mental health or anything well, it's like just, that? Nigel is my dad's name so oh, I'm oh, so no. sorry <laughs> I just think it's hilarious. Nigel's can be I'm nice. A Nigel-y day. Nigel's, it's not Nigel day today, but Nigel's can be nice. I'm assuming your dad doesn't speak like that. I do apologise. Well, on occasion. Louise's dad, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, my goodness me. But yeah, my mental health, I've always nicknamed him Dr. Dark because I don't want to give him, like okay. you said, like you were saying about um, with anorexia people, I don't want to give him a good name. Yeah. And I've always called him Dr. Dark. Some people call it the black dog and stuff like that, but that, yeah. that was my one. That's the only thing I know to give him. Bryony Gordon calls her OCD Jareth the Goblin King after, have you seen Labyrinth, the film Labyrinth? Yes, Labyrinth, Yeah, yes. David Bowie's character yes. in that, which I, I think is good because it, it sums up how, it, obviously this is quite a sinister character, but quite seductive at the same time. And particularly with OCD, it's that little voice of, 
maybe if you just touch that table seven times, then a bad thing won't happen. Just do, just do it once, see what happens. You know, it's that kind of seductive element as well. So I think that's an excellent name. I think that's a fantastic name. David Bowie name. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, guys. Yeah, that, you're probably wondering that was a great impression of, of someone who wasn't It was like David he was Bowie. in the room. He was in the room. Yeah, exactly. I wish he was, bless him. But yeah, um, the other thing that predominantly worries me is, is as parents of children with disabilities, I mean, we have so much else to cope with and we get a lot of stereotypes put upon us, as I'm sure Louise will agree. Mm. I mean, what's your advice to parents who are worried about giving themselves a label as well as having a child with a disability. I mean, I mean, for mine, it, it makes me worry that people think that we're not coping. So mm-hmm. should we be worried about giving ourselves labels as parent carers, say we've got anxiety or bipolar or OCD? Do you think we should just go with it? Um, I think it labels can be really helpful as long as they don't define you. So the, the way I describe it to the teenagers I work with is I say, for me, having panic disorder is the the same as if I had diabetes. I have to be vigilant. I've had to make allowances and change my lifestyle a bit. But, and it's definitely part of who I am, but it's not dominating every single waking thought. You know, I don't think about it all the time and it certainly doesn't define who I am as a person. So I think it's important to label in the first instance because you can't fight an opponent if you don't know who your opponent is and it also gives you access to a community of people who have a similar label and will be able to give you tips but then I also think you need to take a further step of not uh, letting that label define you yeah that that, I think yeah that's absolutely right it's a a fine juxtaposition isn't Mm. it yeah, I've not let it define you. In our instance, I'm sure Louise agree we can't because we've got so much exactly. else going on during the day, haven't we? I mean, it's only once Emily's gone to bed, like I was saying to Louise earlier, I, I find myself perpetually having to busy myself. So even when I've got that free time mm. because of my depression and stuff, I find I constantly have to busy myself because otherwise I'll sit there and think, which I shouldn't have to. It shouldn't have to be like that, should it? We should be able to draw those little snippets of a cup of tea or a look out the window or or, or just... Just anything like that. But I'm sure Louise will agree. I keep saying Louise will agree. Let's just rename this I podcast. I do, I do. I agree <laughs> with everything you say, Louise agrees with Dan. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like Welcome that. to Louise Agrees with Dan. In this episode, Louise Agrees. Yeah. <laughs> and next week, well, you can guess. But yeah. <laughs> Louise Agrees is actually a really good name for a podcast. It is. It, it is, rhymes. It I'm taking it. It's mine. <laughs> okay. Branding that one. All sorted. Yeah. Goodbye. No, we're still here, honestly. But yeah, anxiety. we were talking about anxiety before we came in and how yeah, it just yeah. seems to perpetually define our lives. Can you give us... And anyone listen, some techniques to cope with anxiety, because that seems to be the predominant predominant mental health thing I seem to be finding with all the parent carers I speak to is is as anxiety. And sometimes it can be just so burning. Mm. Well, something I like to do is an exercise. I call it the anxiety to do list. Um, I get three pieces of paper. I, I go classic green, amber, red, like a traffic light. And I write down on the green piece of paper problems I have direct control over, on the amber piece of paper problems which have a solution but I need someone else's help, and on the red piece of paper things I can't control that I'm worrying about. And then if I can do so safely, it's really fun to burn the red piece of paper. (laughs) If not, I tear it up and stamp on it. And then what I've got left is a to-do list broken down into manageable chunks. Sometimes I then... Um, I draw a a kind of quadrant and I divide it into urgent and non-urgent, easy and difficult. So I know if if something's urgent and easy, 
you can do it straight away and then you feel like at least you've done something, you've achieved something and you've broken it down a little bit. Um, I just find that everything seems a little bit more manageable. I think that's great. I can see we've got an MBE. Uh, you ever thought about just coming around with me and Louise and talking to every single parent carer in the country? We can pay you with Pret. Brilliant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Paid by Pret. No, thank you for that because I think tips are, are, are so, so needed because, like I said, we just don't have the time and anything like that. I'm sure people will find help. I'm going to be adopting that one mm. rather than just sit there and feeling it burn on me. Just think, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to let you defeat me. I'm just going to just going to carry on and, and put all these things in place and burn paper. I love the fact burning paper. Yeah. As a little sideline, this has got nothing to do with mental health, just to put it in. When Emily was little, we used to write a note to Father Christmas and we used to say, if we put it in the fireplace and burn it, all the ashes will go up and, oh, and go to like green. Oh, like a Mary Poppins. Yeah, but I will be doing that with that um, scenario of paper you've <laughs> talked about. But yeah, like I said, this podcast is brought to us by Variety. And, not by um, Pratt. No, not by Brett or by, um, was it Louise? Louise Agrees. Louise Agrees. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, multifaceted podcast for copyright reasons. But yeah, like I said, thanks to Variety. Um, Variety does support hundreds of families every year who are struggling with the demands of being a carer. One parent whose daughter we recently provided a wheelchair for told us that just knowing that we've been able to take care of a wheelchair made a huge difference. It was just one less thing she had to worry about, which is really, really good. I mean, we've just got a mobile hoist for Emily and it was the stress of having to lift it all the time as you said physical yes and mental as well and just having those little bits of equipment in the house just made such a difference it's funny how things can make a difference as well as thoughts I mean Louise going off kilter here we go yep Louise agrees oh, Louise yes what do I agree with yeah uh, what well what practical tangible help might make a difference to your mental health do you think? Oh, that's um, probably not the best person to be asking because I don't even have any adaptations in my house. I really? don't have any hoists. I don't have anything at all. No ramps, absolutely nothing. Um, so for me, it's, anything would be really nice. Thank you. Okay, so has it just been a case for you? you you've just solidly been ploughing on getting on with it? Yes, yeah? I've got no alternative. Um, Megan was discharged from our local OT service and nobody else will help us. So really? it is a case of... That's what we know. That's what we get on with. And that's just, yeah, that, that, that's our way of life. That is so tragic. But sadly, it's, it's, you're not alone by saying that because obviously the community that we both move in, I hear that a lot. And it, it doesn't do anything to support parent carers like ourselves. I think but I've shot myself in the foot, though, because um, I like to, I'm very proud. I like to show the world I'm OK. You know, I'm getting on with life. Everything's OK. It's not until I close that door and I'm in my own house that I'm sort of, you know, struggling. Um, but I, I, medical professionals don't sort of take that as they see me at face value and think, oh, yeah, they're fine. They don't need anything. They're getting on with it. Yeah, yeah, I've done that's it. to myself, it. really. Yeah, we've all been down to the GP and, and we all put on the faux British saying, no, I'm fine. I'm exactly. okay. Or if you are having anxiety or, or bipolar or stress or anything, and always find it it's like when you go to the doctors you always seem to put on this narrative that you're well i don't know what it is about the british society when you go to doctors you have to pretend that you're oh i'm okay yeah i'm really fine but then but then you're not and even in some cases when you do say yeah i'm, I'm struggling a bit they go okay i've got two minutes right this there you go mm. bye yeah. what support can i have well i don't really know but you know next patient next which is not their fault because they're predominantly so overstretched but you think there'd be more out there for us considering uh, what we save the country financially 
Exactly. By caring. We don't just do it for the money. We do it because we love and adore the very atoms of our children. But you think for what we do, hidden in the shadows, there would be more support for us because we're bringing up beautiful, beautiful young lives, aren't we? And you were talking about how the fact you shut the door at night. I mean, have you adopted any coping strategies when things reach a crescendo, when you're on when you're on your own behind the door, if you don't mind me asking anything? No, um, it's taken me a long, long time to be able to admit to myself that actually, no, you're not all right. Um, I do agree with Natasha. I do like to take, I, I have a habit of seeing everything as a whole. You know, there were things I couldn't control, but I would be stressing about. There were things I was worrying about for next year. You know, what about when the kids grow up and leave home? I didn't need to be worrying about that today. So I do take every day as it comes. I give myself bite-sized chunks that are manageable for me. And if I can't manage with them, I make them even smaller. Um, for me, that's the only way that I can cope when things get too tough. Um, and recognising in myself that I'm starting to struggle. Um, I used to just push on and think, well, I'll be fine. But actually, I'm learning to just turn around to the family and say, look, mummy's not having a very good day today. So, you know, chicken and chips for dinner. That's great. The kids don't care what they eat, do they? Oh. It's you know, Chicken and chips is lovely. Exactly. Chicken and chips is lovely. It's not yeah, prep, enjoy though. It. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, it's wonderful you can be so honest in front of the kids. I'm so, I've, I've, I've learned to be honest in front of Emmy. I mean, Natasha, do you think it pays for us as parents to be honest with our children about the state of our mental health? Because some people say, no, you can't, you can't. You'll be putting that upon them. But then if they're the only audience we've got, mm. say, I mean, there are a lot of single parent carers and also young carers. And if the person you're caring for is the only audience you've got, surely in, in respect, we should be able to, in a, in, in a, in a decent way, yeah. Odd way to put it, but in a calm way, explain to them that we're not feeling 100% all the time. Do you think we mm. should be more open with the people we're looking after? I think it's really important for children to realise that it's not them. Children bring everything back to themselves. So if mum or dad or whoever's looking after them is in a terrible mood, they will try and relate that to something that they've done. And it's really important that somebody... Um, dispels that narrative for them and says, actually, this is about something completely outside you. It's not you. Um, and I also think, I've, uh, for me, it's it's about people like to be helpful, whether you're talking about a child or an adult, people like to think they can do something. So with my relationship with my family, if I'm having a bad day, I first of all always say, I'm, I'm having a really bad day today. And I try and think, even if I just make it up, I try and think of something like a job I can give them. I say, oh, it would really be helpful if you could do this. Like sometimes I'll say to my mum, can I have a sandwich and a cup of tea? Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> you know, I can't fix your mental health problems, but I can do that because it, then it, it, it makes them feel like they're being helpful. You yeah. Know? No, I think that's great. I mean, what I loved, the other thing about talking about it in your book, which covers everything from mental health A to Z, with some fantastic chapters, I must admit. The chapters sold it to me first. I loved your chapter on venting. Yeah. Can you elaborate on the workings of what you call the duck, the duck chair? The duck chair. I'm going to say that again for everyone listening. <laughs> the duck chair. I mean, all of us who care get so angry at the sheer unfairness of situations outside of our control. Can you talk to us about the duck chair? I'm doing inverted commas for people who can't <laughs> yeah. see you, by the way. We have a chair in back back home. I say home. I don't live there anymore. Uh, but back home in Essex, where my parents still live, there is a chair that has 
uh, ducks on it. Where I actually posted a picture of the duck chair to Instagram last Christmas, and people were surprised by. I think they imagined like rubber ducks, but it's it's more tasteful than that. It's sort of like flying ducks <laughs> kind of thing. Hilda uh, Ogden's wall, is it that sort of thing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listeners of a certain age, sorry. <laughs> and um, so the rule is, if you are really wound up about something, you you can say, "I'm going to the duck chair." And when you're in the duck chair, you're allowed to rant about it and everybody has to listen. But then as soon as you leave the duck chair, it's finished. Okay. (laughs) So it's a sort of, it's giving a window to your anger, which is healthy, but it's not letting it spill over beyond the duck chair. I think that's a great thing. Louise, do you have a duck chair? I don't, but I'm going to get myself one. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I'm going to carry it around with me everywhere. (laughs) No, I I don't have a duck chair. I, I think... Like we were talking about earlier about running, I, I do go running a lot. And I, I tend to go running in the dark now to help my mental health because it's, now it's winter and Emily's asleep and stuff like that. My wife likes to read and things, but I go for a run and I find myself, that really helps. But the only problem is I find myself in a lot of ditches right? because it's yeah. so dark, <laughs> yeah. which, which again, just makes me really cross. But yeah, I, I think physical exercise is, is my duck chair. The best rant in the duck chair ever was when um, my mum can rant. People meet my mum and all they, mums can yeah, rant, and they go, they? "You make sense now." And um, she was she got on one about how supermarkets are taking over the high street, and there's no grocers or butchers or individual shops anymore. You just have these big um, cathedrals of consumerism. So she sat on the duck chair, her arms are going round like a windmill. She was really getting into this rant. Meanwhile, my dad is just walking around the living room, picking things up, going. It's from Waitrose. It's from Sainsbury's. <laughs> <laughs> they they should have their own TV show. My parents. Oh, I think all parents should have a TV. Show. I, I think I think Carers United would be a good TV show <laughs> for us. All of us just venting at, at, at the greater world. But but yeah, I mean that would be a great thing. A good TV. Like all these TV shows, like Pret and and Louise's <laughs> one and great. I mean, we we need to release our anger, and TV would be good. But what other? ways to release our anger i mean you, venting's great but some of us like we say live in instances with children who have sensory issues and they can't you know that they mm. deliberately avoid anger and confrontation confrontation even he said with his teeth in and aggression <laughs> what what in that instance do you can you think of anything we can do to release anger yeah I'd, um not everybody, for a whole variety of reasons, either, either can or will express themselves verbally. And it, as I explore in the book, English is pretty poor as well in terms of its emotional scope. We don't have as many words as other languages to describe how we feel and our state of mental well-being. So um, if you can express yourself in something that kind of circumnavigates the challenges with language, if you can um, do something physical to get the feeling out like even if you just punch a pillow sometimes that's enough to, to get your anger and frustration out if you're able to go for a walk get some fresh air some people find um you know painting and and drawing um it, you know anything creative can be a really good way to express any emotion but particularly anger gotcha because there's a big misconception about releasing anger that or, or just having time to yourself that you need a good hour or, or day I'm aware through experience that you can have literally like two minutes or five minutes there. Mm. Just look out the window. Yeah. Just sketch something. 
just just like you said, punch a pillow for five minutes. I mean, in our situations, Carol, especially Louise agree, those little snippets of time just to make yourself feel good are so important, aren't they? So do you think that's a good, it's, it's, it's a myth that you're sold that you have to have a whole day out to feel good, but you can have little snippets of time instead? Yeah, I mean, this is what annoys me is that wellness has become an industry now. So people have a vested interest in saying to you, you know, you have to come to my retreat and hire out some kind of hut and do mindfulness with these special crystals. It, it doesn't have to look like that. You know, it, it's really simple steps that you can take. If you can, in, yeah, if you've got 10 minutes, instead of looking at your phone or tidying or, you know, doing whatever you would normally do to fill that 10 minutes, if you can make a cup of tea and go and sit in the garden, that has emptied your stress bucket a little bit. And it, you, there's no law that says you have to do an hour at once. <laughs> you, know, you can do it in those little tiny chunks. Yeah, I think that's absolutely imperative because, I, I, like I said, a lot of us feel so guilty about we can't take an hour out or, or 10 minutes there or, or we can't even get out for a day. What mm. are we going to do is release that vent, like I said, little snippets like that. that. That's absolutely brilliant. I mean, I know, Louise, you're a really sporty family, aren't you? Well, you say that, but I've never considered us to be that way. It's Louise just the way disagrees. We Louise disagrees. Uh, yes. Oh my yes. goodness, we've gone from the positive to the so negative. Sorry. Oh my goodness me! <laughs> but no, all, um, from what I see, uh, and, and, uh, not in a creepy way, but on Facebook and Twitter, because we we do follow each other. I can always okay. see that you're out and about doing sports. I know you did parallel London and things like that. Yeah. So, do you find sport a release for yourself when you can get chance to do it? Well, um, so I never really considered us to be a sporting family. Like I say, it's just the way that we are. Um, and I mentioned it to my husband and, yeah, we did both do the marathon this year. So I guess kind of in a way, yeah, we're sporty. Um, my, my daughter's done archery, wheelchair racing. Um, both my other two do gymnastics. And so, yeah, I guess we are a sporty family. But I think that's only because we have this energy that we all need to release. And sport is obviously the most logical reason uh, the most most logical way to do that um but the other things we do are we've got an allotment plot so we go down there and we me especially when the kids are at school I'll go down there like you say for an hour it doesn't have to be an all-day thing but I will just lose myself and something happens inside my body and it's just everything gets released it's almost like a magic potion honestly it really is I get completely lost and my mind just has a chance to reset and rebalance. And once I leave there, I feel stronger to face whatever challenges I've got to look forward to after school. No, that's great because I'm sure you agree, Natasha. At times, for me as well, I can actually feel that tension release. Yeah. You know? And that there is something happening in your body. Um, exercise releases endorphins, which I always describe as being like an etch-a-sketch for your body so it, it comes along and it wipes the slate clean and restores your chemical balance and hopefully you two know what an etch sketch is because sometimes when I say to teenagers they have no idea and it makes me feel really old oh loving it I do love an etch sketch but uh, yeah yeah try and explain that to, uh, to Emily now well it had dials and you could draw lines yeah what, like an iPad sort of like an iPad like but a not... really rubbish iPad yeah like a prehistoric prehistoric iPad and a couple of dolls and no, I'm, I'm not getting it dad I'm not getting it dad at all but no, no, no. Oh, okay fair enough but yeah I mean we were talking earlier about about statistics about carers I mean 35% of carers have missed out on state benefits because again they didn't realize they could claim them and and any bit benefit we can get financially to help us takes a little bit of a burden off i mean louise we're both in the care system carers benefit things like that do you think the system itself needs simplifying is there enough awareness of the other financial support we can get 
Do you think it's, it's too overly complicated? Um, for me, I think it's really difficult because my husband has been deemed as um, earning too much. I mean, how anyone's worked that out, I don't know, because we own our own home. We have three children. We support another child that my husband had. Um, how can they deem what is too much? Yeah. So for me, that really infuriates me. But because of that, we're not entitled to any benefits at all, which means I'm not then eligible for any of the carer's benefits. So You, you know, don't get carer's allowance at all? I get carer's allowance, but I don't get any of the other benefits at all. What, like Because um, the, there's carer's credit, isn't there? Carer's pre- premium? Yeah, not entitled to them because I don't receive um, income support, job seekers allowance, none of that stuff. So I've, I've looked into it, but I'm not personally eligible. Um, but I did actually approach somebody um, and I did say, you know, we're in this situation. We have a disabled child. We own our home. What is the best thing we can do? And the honest to God advice we were given is split up. No. <gasps> yep. I will receive my my benefits then. My husband would have to pay for the children. I'd get the house. That was the honest. So I said, right, we're married. We own our house. We're bringing up the children as a family. And they said, yeah, don't do that. Split up. That's awful. I and mean, what sort of a system of parent carers really living under when you get sort of advice like that? Why, Like I said, we give, we give so much in love and care and we save the country so much in what we do. You'd think it'd be a bit more tangible, a bit more open, a bit more kind. There'd be a whole stream on, like, we should have a, a minister for carers. I, I, I completely think. agree. Yeah, we should have we a minister for whatever government. We have a minister for carers so we can, as someone there fighting our corner. And ideally it would be someone who was a carer. Because you yeah. hear so much awful things, like you just said, coming out when you ask for advice. I think it all needs to be streamlined. I mean, it's, 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 it's terrible in that respect, isn't it, to be told that. No, we had to terrible. make the choice. I mean, yeah. do we do that and financially benefit or do we raise our children as a family? And, you know, we're, we're still together. Good. We've been together 15 years, Good. married for 10, and unfortunately I can't get rid of him. I will take this minute just to, just to say that um, there are a lot of single parent carers in the country and I do take my hat off of them because they're often so isolated and they just do such great things. And I'm hoping with this podcast they're going to find such great techniques from you, Natasha, and Lou, Lou Louise for just such good advice to take on board because there are so many. We're not all lucky enough to still be together with our partners. So I just mm. want to say that if you're out there and you're listening, we just really appreciate what you're doing. I mean, and I'm going to finish with a biggie here. It's probably a full podcast on its own, he said, but what would you, both of you, suggest to make the life of a parent, carer, and child easier and more comfortable, both from a physical and mental point of view? Ooh, who's going to go first on that one? Natasha, what would you do? Um, so I would say two things. First of all, that um, if you imagine communication like a door, that door always has to be left ajar so that if you're ever struggling and you need to step through it, you know you can, it's not closed. So a really good habit to get into is at the end of every day or when you're having your dinner or whatever, to um, have some set questions that you ask. So for example, um, rate your day from one to seven uh, why is it lower than yesterday? What would need to happen to make the number higher tomorrow? Just so you get into the habit of evaluating and articulating emotions every single day. Um, and you could, that can work both ways as well. So you can do that parent to child and child to parent. Um, the other thing that I would say is um, there's a fantastic charity called Young Minds. If your child is under 25 and you are concerned about any aspect of their emotional or mental health, you can call their parent helpline and somebody will be able to not only listen, but hopefully give you some advice as well. Oh, brilliant. Well done. What about you, Louise? Any thoughts? 
I think for me, it's just as a uh, carer, it's just to be kind to yourself. I think we're all in this habit of beating ourselves up, um, me especially. Um, I think we just need to be kinder to ourselves. And, you know, we're only human. Everyone has bad days or good days, whether they're looking after somebody else or not. Um, so, yeah, that and enjoy the quality time. You know, sometimes it's it's really easy to get caught up in life and not appreciate the things that we have just like yesterday I was snuggled up watching Elf with the kids and it was just that's exactly oh, that's what beautiful. I needed it that's was exactly beautiful. what I needed so no I think you're right I just appreciate what what we do have I know it's hard at times yeah. but and, and just appreciate that we all have faults mentally and physically none of us are perfect we need to be society needs to stop selling us this idea of perfection through all the media because it's just not true we all have faults and frailties even those again we've evolved imperfect because we're we're a tribal species so we have to rely on one another otherwise we've become extinct exactly no i absolutely agree but well time's up unfortunately (laughs) for uh louise's (laughs) podcast (laughs) (laughs) louise agrees yeah louise agrees thank you for listening to louise agrees sponsored by um well uh, pret (laughs) 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 but no sadly time's up but thank you natasha so much and thank you louise so much for coming in today uh and thank you for listening to this episode of podability brought to you by variety the children's charity as i said variety provides tangible equipment to help children and young people become more independent develop the social skills and crucially to help parents be able to meet their care needs better and more easily at home visit www.variety.org.uk to find out more about what we fund if you like what you heard on this episode why wouldn't you Please share it with your friends. You can subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for Variety Podability, where you can also rate and review the series. But I just want to finish by saying that if you're a carer out there, you're so appreciated. We all have faults. We all have frailties. But our children are wonderful. And if we all stick together or just reach out whenever we can, life may be a little bit easier. But you're so appreciated. Young carers, parent carers, single parent carers. Rock on. Rock on.